Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 59 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by none other than Ricardo Morales, who is the principal clarinetist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Not only is Ricardo one of the most sought-after clarinetists of his generation, but he's also one of the few people in the world who has had the chance to literally design his own instrument. The collaboration between Ricardo Morales and Bakun Musical Services led to the world-renowned and Canadian-made Bakun MOBA clarinet line. We discuss what it was like collaborating with Maury Bakun, including why he prefers Coco Bolo to Grenadilla, and the interesting reason why he, at first, asked Maury to dye his red Coco Bolo instrument black. Ricardo shares so many insightful and inspirational moments throughout this episode about music, life, practicing, and much, much more. Detailed show notes for today's episode can be found at www.clarineat.com. While you're there, I invite you to subscribe to our email list for a chance to win giveaways mentioned on the podcast. You can also check out the reviews, videos, the blog, the online store, and the new Patreon page. Patreon backers now get access to extended versions of episodes in high-quality audio, bonus content that's not otherwise found on the website, and much, much more. This week, I'd like to thank our latest Patreon backers, Gregory C. and Karen D., and now I bring you Ricardo Morales after a short message from our sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Dario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds. Welcome to the podcast, Ricardo. Just, just for some context for listeners, you're actually in Vancouver right now. What is it that brings you to Vancouver? Are, are you getting your clarinets worked on by Maury? Or? I am here in Vancouver to do the final stage uh, uh, prep for uh, the, uh, newest, uh, the newest members of the Bakun family, which are the Model F and the Q. <laughs> so finalizing some new instruments right now. Yes, yes. What was it like working on a brand new instrument sort of from the ground up and any sort of story about how this relationship with Maury blossomed into that sort of artistic culmination of a new instrument? It so happens that Maury and I have uh, a common teacher, which is uh, Ronald DeCant. He started with, uh, uh, Maury started with Ronald DeCant when he was a, a young uh, kid here in Vancouver. Ronald DeCant was a principal clarinetist of the Vancouver Symphony for uh, 25 years. And he uh, taught at the uh, Arizona State University. And when he taught me, he was a professor at Cincinnati College Conservatory. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's we're just a few generations uh, separated, but but uh, uh, you know, uh, Ron has uh, a very long, distinguished career, so he he knew how about my love of gadgets and how always uh, searching for things. And he uh, once called me and said, "You know, I have somebody that I know is uh, you're going to love because he's just as crazy as you are." About <laughs> 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 the thing. So then, um, you know, I uh, uh, he gave me uh, Morris number and I called him, and it was interesting because after talking to him for. 
I don't know, two, three minutes. It just felt like we've been friends forever. It was just uh, really funny. So we got along really great. And then uh, Moria and, and Joel, uh, Jaffe uh, prepared a box of uh, bells and barrels for me to try. I had never uh, tried any of the other things. It was always just the usual Grenadilla stuff. And I remember when when I got that uh, box, it was uh, really amazing because the way that you had to open it, it ended up looking like one of those fancy uh, uh, chocolate cases with all these different things. So it was like so colorful, you know, granadilla and rosewood and boxwood and kingwood. It was just insanely beautiful. So I was uh, really uh, surprised. Just a rainbow of color and uh, different shapes. So it was fantastic. So, uh, you know, I was uh, immediately uh, taken by all the stuff and trying them and the different tonal possibilities, etc. And so I immediately started using... Uh, some of his uh, bells and barrels, and then as uh, as our friendship developed, we were he's you know he being a consumer repairman and acoustician, he was always interested in trying to hone things, and um, uh, you know he just started uh, asking me questions about the things that that I that I wanted to fine tune uh, for, for my instruments. And, you know, we, we got some uh, different sets of uh, bells and barrels that were working really well and I liked them. And as people uh, got to uh, see me playing them, my colleagues and some of my students started trying them and they really uh, uh, were becoming very popular. So then we decided to make a very specific uh, line of uh, bells and barrels together. So, you know, so, so that then I, I would try those. And so that's where the MOBA, uh, thought started coming from and so as, as we uh, kept going you know he's uh, repairing my instruments and this and that and I'm always like well this is good but why don't we do try this or that and so we started like by you know fine tuning some undercutting and just uh, working on some uh, key work and tone hole placement and then you know doing more intricate work and we like, had to get into major surgery with the instruments and doing more redesign and things like that and then uh, one day we were talking and, and uh, after we had gotten into a routine of doing this. I would get a brand new clarinet and then, you know, uh, I would select one that I thought I liked and then I would just send it to Mori to just get completely refurbished Mm -hmm. and be bored and all that stuff. And then when they were talking, I was like, you know, instead of fixing everybody else's things, why don't we just do our own thing? And then I think that it would be much more fun and much easier to start uh, with uh, you know what we would think it would be a right beginning instead of you know always having to uh, be redoing things. So, so just for some context, what what year was it that you tried the barrels? Do you remember? And then what year was it that you guys decided to create the, the, the new well, instrument? Yeah, it was about 2002, 2003. The Moba Clarinet is a, a combination of about ten years of our working together with, uh, with bells, barrels, uh, mouthpieces, and all kinds of things. And I have to tell you, I've, I feel extremely lucky. Uh, so I'm extremely lucky and and uh, very happy to be able to uh, do this. I, I know that uh, there's not very many people in the world who've had the opportunity to you know, be able to work with uh, somebody who is a master acoustician and, re- and repairman and that uh, also that would understand uh, and be sympathetic to a player's needs uh, as much as, as Maury. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, that I have loved from the beginning is that he is 
just as relentless as I am is not crazier about things. So <laughs> that you know, but it's just amazing. We are uh, we are of, a, of a same thought so often. It's ridiculous that we start talking about something and it's just like like we're talking in unison about uh, the things that we would like to do in the instruments and what we're hearing and things of like that. But. But, you know, the, to have the opportunity, one thing is to be able to, you know, we can have client friends and talk about and fantasize, wouldn't it be nice if, if the instrument did this or did that? And to, to be able to uh, be thinking, why not? And let's just do it and let's try it. And and frankly, to uh, to be as successful and to work as successful as we, uh, it has worked, it, it is uh, just, uh, you know, I have a T-shirt that I that I actually um, like to wear once in a while, and it's, uh, it's it just says "Living the Dream," you know, and it's it really as a clarinet player, it is uh, it is really something that it is unique in the in the business, and. So that's that's where uh, we came uh, to do the MOBA after having worked on different makers and different makes, etc., and and seeing what are the things that we had liked and the things that, of course, that uh, we wanted to avoid and uh, to not have the same kinds of pitfalls. Uh, so then. Um, one of the things that worked the best in order to be able to make uh, what the mobile client has been is that, you know, we had to, we got an opportunity to be sort of like, uh, it was interesting. I, it sounds a little, it sounds a little extreme, but to me it was like be spiritual about the client. And mm -hmm. what about that? It's like, it's not, well, I, I'm playing my client. Uh, can you just uh, undercut this song while I make this a uh, little bit brighter and they keep going. I, when I started thinking about it uh, for the things that we wanted to do, and it was, you have to be thinking about the music and separate yourself from the music. And the way I did uh, for helping to, uh, to come up with a vision of what I was hoping, it was like, how do you hear the music? in your mind, or how do you hear the sound, and what are the things that um, that you want it to, how is it that you want to be able to play it? How is it that you want to be able to execute something in order for it to come out? So uh, obviously then that deals with several factors. Of course, you know, when you're imagining a particular sound, then of course the bore, the board design and the way that it tapers, etc., has very much to do with how the tone is shaped in, uh, when one blows. And uh, imagining how you would have a great time playing it, then you know you have to be thinking about where the tone hole placement and the key work, how those things end up uh, coming into play. And I must say that it, it you know. From from dream to reality, I, I you know in, in life we have our dreams and then we live life, right? And I must say that the closest thing that I have in in, in terms of uh, what one imagines to what uh, what a reality is is uh, this client. I feel extremely happy. I love how it sounds and 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 how it feels to play. I also actually. Uh, know that a lot of the great qualities of the instrument in terms of the way that it rings and the evenness of sound, etc., is it does sound uh, different than what we call a traditional clarinet. It has uh, mm -hmm. certain, especially the cocobolo, has a different kind of soft uh, softness to the sound, where whereas uh, uh, then 
I, for me, I feel like I have more freedom to be expressive, and I can always put the brilliance into it uh, as I play, as compared to you know playing defense, as, uh, as we were to say that yeah. you know to not, not don't get too crazy and for it not to get too too honky or whatever. So uh, those things are great, and you know this uh, the last few years it has been just a great pleasure, and it has been really interesting because many of the compliments that I get from uh, uh, people going to concerts and uh, from my soul etc is that they're like so happy oh it sounds so great but it's like I never heard the clarinet play like that and the sound etc and you know uh, I know that uh, you know I, at the end of the day the instrument is a microphone of what one is trying to uh, do so it either uh, does what you're hoping to do and enhances or it detracts it's hardly ever just ex- uh, just uh, neutral and I have, I have been lucky to say that uh, that at least from the reviews that I've gotten and from the, the reviews, I uh, mean, and the feedback that I get from uh, fellow planet players and colleagues and oh, for other instruments, etc., it was very, uh, has been uh, really successful. Having said that, of course, you know, it would, uh, we would be very happy to leave it at that. That would be normal. But since we're a little bit crazy and always, uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we have uh, used uh, the, the experience and the knowledge of making this instrument to uh, uh, bring a different uh, uh, different uh, route of instruments that are, you know, the, the F model and the uh, new Q model that, that we're doing, which, uh, which adopt a lot of the technical advances uh, and acoustical uh, differences that, that we put in the mobile, yet uh, had some extra little features that are more uh, traditional, uh, sh- shall we say, like the, the way that the poles are put into the instrument, etc. So that then, uh, then it also, and, and the shape and the, the weight of the instrument, so that then it has perhaps some more of the, what we would call more traditional features of the clarinet sound, but it has a completely advanced new board design and tone hole placement design, etc. So that then uh, we can uh, uh, we can enjoy having a, a, an instrument that has all the clarinetic uh, qualities that we like, you know, yet the stuff that then I don't have to apologize for being more out of tune than a flute <laughs> player that has a $60,000 power or Haynes flute, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So before we go on too much more, I, I think I'm overwhelmed with questions I now want to ask. <laughs> um, so let's go way back to when you first did try those 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 few barrels that you had. You open them up and you're all excited about what was inside the case. But yeah. which one back then was your favorite? There must have been like the Fat Boy and the more traditional and yes. Well, actually, the the, the Fat Boy and the the Fat Boy and the and the Moba right now those were developed later. So oh, at the same time. So what existed back then in 2003? I'm not familiar. Uh, they, they were shaped more like the traditional barrel, the, mm. the traditional barrel that we have, which is uh, the uh, typical shape and taper of, uh, of, of, of just most most uh, normal uh, clarinet barrels. And then, of course, they, they, there were a couple of them that were more pear-shaped and like uh, for like with uh, made out of maple and things like that to compensate uh, for the lack of density just for the sound, etc. And some of the thicker ones were... Uh, of different shapes, you know, like the rings were thicker and bigger. You know, we have uh, experimented with many different things, and we went from, uh, you know, he he always uh, whenever he uh, gives me something to try, it's very funny because he he crosses his arms, he sits down back, and then he's looking down from his glasses like that because I go, oh yeah, man, yeah, I love this. This is great. This is great. 
but <laughs> so you know, so he's always waiting for that. But you know, with with a little grin, so it's sort of funny. Yeah. And, uh, so the the first one, I I have to tell you that this and uh, is super embarrassing now, but it is very typical of uh, that of the way people think about climate and how the mentality was. Because I remember, you know, he we were just. Uh, getting to meet each other. This is like within the, uh, I met him just a month or whatever, and he sent me this package and I found some stuff and immediately the ones that I preferred, the sound and uh, and the playability, etc. I was drawn to Coco Polo right away, mm. which is interesting. I had Kingwood, Rosewood, two different kinds of Rosewood. Uh, it was just all kinds of things, but just a standard one made out of, uh, remember, Coco Polo with Granadilla rings. It was pretty fancy. It was beautiful. Uh, so I started using those. And I remember the bell. It was so gorgeous. And I'm like, you know, but hey, hey this brown color thing, you know, everybody plays black clarinets. I cannot play with this. Uh, I don't want to, you know. So I remember calling him. I said, hey, so, uh, I love this stuff, Maury, but uh, listen, man, uh, would you mind dyeing my bells and barrels black? Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's like, I, I think back and it's like, you know what I mean? It's a little. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> well, you're so, before the times a little bit, though, because that was, I remember even seeing back in 2004 or five. I went yeah. up to, to uh, see, uh, not Seattle, um, Vancouver, and we saw the Pacific Wind Symphony playing. And I remember particularly that they all had these bacoon barrels and it was so yeah. colorful, but you never saw that anywhere back then. Right. I would qualify myself as being adventurous, etc. but even I was a little, uh, uh, so I, I can't believe, I mean, it's like, I can't believe I asked the question. And he was so, I, I must tell you that he was so gracious. He was like, uh, really? Uh, <laughs> uh, sure, if, if that's what you want. But, uh, yeah, we can try it. I'll, I'll die for you, no problem. And then, so, yeah, so he that's all he said, right? Which is sort of funny. And then, ah, uh, oh, cool. So I was, peace of mind, I love this, and nobody will tell, blah, blah, blah. And, like, uh, it's like three days later when I was just about to go to the post office, and I was like, you know what the hell with it? Yeah, I'm crazy. Forget it. So I go, yeah, listen, more. forget it. I'm just crazy. Uh, never mind. It's just nuts. You know, it's just nuts. So <laughs> it was, but, but what I uh, have to say about that is that, you know, it is normal for uh, players to, you know, see something that is, you know, off of the beaten, uh, the uh, worked, uh, already worked path and, you know, and, and to be a little apprehensive, but, you know, if I, uh, uh, what, what I would say suggest to people is yes, give yourself the opportunity. They, you don't even have to think of courage. Give yourself the yeah the opportunity to be adventurous and to um, to check uh, and to apply to the daily vocabulary. What if? Yeah. What if? You know, so that way we keep a more panoramic view of how to uh, play music, what kind of instrument we can use, uh, how to uh, how to play, etc. Well, it's very funny you say that because I feel like a lot of people pick Coco Bolo, well, not just Coco Bolo, but various things because they look different and they do want to separate themselves from it. So what was it about the feel of the Coco Bolo and the sound that you preferred if it wasn't the look itself? Yeah, well, for uh, for me, what I found was that it, that it just had a softness to the to the texture of the sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I found that it gave me uh, what I would call a halo in the sound. There's, you know, in Granadilla, I really like it. The upper partials of the sound uh, are very defined in a way that I would call a nice ring, like a ding, 
something, you know. Yeah. But pants have we have that, but just a little bit of a velvet blanket around it. So it's like a ding ding, like yeah, it's a halo to the sound. So mm-hmm. uh, whenever I uh, play something that I just wanted just a special sound, I really like that. And uh, and also what I found was that with the res- the response was uh, quicker, and uh, not just uh, in terms of actual speed but like the the amount of sound that I'm getting if when I play pianissimo or something like that you, you can feel like it responds better and therefore it invites you to be able to play softer that, uh, and therefore you get uh, more courageous about playing more co- colors in the in the sound and not be oh I can I have to play ta just to be safe because otherwise the response is a little uh, uh, difficult so this way uh, it sort of encourages uh, gives you permission to to be more musically minded instead of just uh, playing in a safe way hmm. and what would you say your favorite innovation on the MOBA clarinet is. Well, without a doubt, I mean, like the F band, that, I mean, the, the, it's, it's actually every single tone hole placement. Uh, I mean, if you uh, try any traditional uh, instrument out there, uh, when you grab a mobile, you'll find there's a particular kind of different feel. And, and after you give yourself the chance, it's actually more comfortable. But mm-hmm. at the beginning, it feels different because every single tone hole placement is different in order yes. to achieve the scale, etc. So, you know, of course the scale is great, but one of the things that I love is uh, having the automatic vent key, you know, because it's not just that then you get a much better 12. I mean, yes, that you get a better 12, but you get a note that basically is a non-note in most instruments. And, uh, but the treatment that we do, especially in the MOBA, it just, um, uh, it allows you to get a particular kind of response and stability for the rest of the right hand, mm-hmm. which uh, is my favorite feature of the of the instrument. So for those who don't know, uh, would you describe exactly what the low F vent does if they're not familiar with that on an instrument? So the automatic uh, low F vent is a vent that is actually open at all times, uh, whereas uh, when uh, there is a spatula and the key for the low E, so that then yeah, whenever you're playing you, uh, the low register, it is open and it helps for the venting and to uh, make it easier for the resistance and the resonance. And then when uh, for the low E, the low E has a spatula, which uh, a little arm that closes it without you having to do anything. And then it closes when you uh, when one plays in the upper racer, it has a it has a, uh, a lever just in the regular uh, 12th lever it just engages it so then it closes the minute that you engage the 12th key mm. so uh, so when you go on the upper racer, then you don't have to deal with that vent being open and therefore you don't have to do any adjust uh, new fingering no stretching your pinky or you know having to do the uh, German style you know uh, thumb ear or anything like that. This one, uh, what I love is that it's there for you and then you don't have to do anything about it. It's sort of like having antelope operates. Does, does that key, though, add a lot of weight to the instrument? Because it runs down the whole length of the tube, really, doesn't it? From the Actually, uh, the, uh, the the thing is that the, the key work that uh, has been done in such a way uh, with the, uh, and the type of spring action that it, that it has, it is it, quite smooth so that then the mm-hmm. uh, it, you can you can do it, and it, uh, when it's uh, if you have it uh, perfectly adjusted, there's no. I actually I don't even 
I don't even feel it. I, I have tried many instruments uh, without the key, and when I play mine with the key, I, I don't, I don't find uh, any adjustment. Of course, if we, if one were to try one that is maladjusted, then of course you will feel it. But that, that goes for any key. <laughs> yeah, sir. I didn't mean a weight in the key press. I meant weight on the instrument on your your arms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it doesn't really. Uh, no, no, no. That doesn't really add much. As you, I am actually just uh, trying the weight on. Um, um, just a traditional instrument and the other. I, I would say it's less than, I said it's less than two ounces. So for okay. sure, it's not, it's not something that would really just uh, really uh, predetermine your uses. Actually, um, one of the things that I do use and I recommend for all clarinet players, I actually use as a neck strap all the time, actually. Which type uh, of neck strap? Yeah, and with an elastic, with the elastic band rest, uh, next row, so that way it takes away some of the weight, but you still have the flexibility to uh, put the clarinet in the in the most uh, precise. Is there a particular brand though? I'm sure people will want to go looking. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been using the BG next straps and uh, uh, Beelich or some BG next straps for uh, 20 years now. So okay. it, uh, they're just uh, great. Actually, you know. I, I mainly started using it because I, uh, in the Metropolitan Opera, you've been playing for many, many hours. And of course, you know, I, at the fifth hour of Parsifal, you know, you don't get uh, extra points for being a hero and then just <laughs> keep it on your hands for five hours. So it's like, so I actually, uh, and actually when I was there, I had developed tendonitis. Uh, and uh, after therapy and workouts, et cetera, and of course using the next round, then, uh, then I, I, I got cured. So, that's very interesting, actually, and I didn't expect the conversation to go this way, but uh, I recently injured my hand really badly, and so is there any advice you'd give to people who are trying to recover from, from that sort of injury? Is it just patience? Uh, there are three things. Uh, so the first thing I would say, immediately, next strap. Next strap right away. And, you know, uh, some people say, oh, I use it for practice, and that's it. I would say, uh, use, uh, use it all the time. Number two is more rest intervals in your practice session, okay? Okay. And then the third one, uh, which is very important is you need to strengthen your arms and uh, and the thing that the body is everything is interconnected so everything that we're using for playing uh, is connected so that means that if you're having like a hand problems like tendonitis etc what happens is that usually uh, it is that we're holding the instrument and then the when the muscles get fatigued and we keep going then the muscles are not moving as well so then the tendons start to uh, do some of the work that is supposed to be delegated to the muscles and therefore they work a little extra hard and when they're working extra hard they get inflamed and therefore you get your tendonitis and if mm -hmm. they get super inflamed in, car, in your tunnel then that's where you get your carpal tunnels so i uh, the way that i got better with my uh with my hand uh, issues was that i actually started working out and oh. i started doing weight training and I remember that, you know, it is really interesting because you, know, uh, you might not be able to believe it, but uh, when I first started uh, working out, I remember that I had a hard time, you know, bench pressing like 45 pounds. So I started, and you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a professional, and I'm not Mr. Olympia or anything. But I, I got to the to the circuit that I did building up over a, over a year and a half then I got to uh, like the most I did was like 220 I was doing much better and then I got lazy again and whatever mm -hmm. but but that my base my base is much higher now like whenever whenever I show up to the gym I can work it up to like a 150 175 which is not as much as before but it's not 40 pounds okay yeah. so so the uh, overall uh, strength 
uh, of my muscles is is higher, and you know that might seem you know if uh, for some of our uh, uh, members that are listening that that may be injured, of course you know you cannot be going and doing something that severe right away. But uh, it's little by little. You can just start with uh, cans of beans, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just, uh, with that and actually it is not just for the hands but you have to strengthen everything it's connected the, the forearms the biceps the shoulders the back and then the chest and everything once you have everything uh, much uh, more comfortably uh, developed then you uh, the instrument will obviously feel lighter and uh, in my case it was sort of a direct injury to the tendons um through a laceration so it's <laughs> a little different than most i suppose but but uh, uh, as far as like the physical um strength training and stuff like that do you feel that helped your playing in some way or your breath support or absolutely. your yeah did you go into that a little bit yes absolutely yes uh, i mean like uh, so of course everything uh, uh, uh everything that that we do in order to improve our uh our strength and uh, stamina definitely can uh, can be put into work. I mean, I, I had uh, friends and students in the past who actually ran marathons and they were still running out of breath. So it's not just it, we had. Uh, there's a technique, a different technique for you know just running, uh, you know, to uh, five thousand meter or whatever, and or or how to uh, blow uh, through the instrument. But obviously, if you have the lung capacity, it's, it's a different technique, but you can uh, channel that. But if you have the capacity, then obviously it's a matter of being able to apply it. But I, I would say, yes, that a little bit of strength training and flexibility is, is important. Absolutely. So let's actually change gears again. I, this has been very interesting for me personally, but let's go back and talk a little more about the MOBA clarinet before we move on. You mentioned that it sort of had a spiritual element to it and that you thought that the, designing the clarinet sort of was a pinnacle of your 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 career. W- would you view that almost as sort of at par with your, your playing achievements in its, or in its own way or different? Or how, how do you think about that? I would say it's, uh, it's similar. It's very similar. And it's sort of like life. You know, the thing is that what, what I would say is that there's a phrase that music is life and, you know, it sounds spiritual, it sounds interesting, but I actually find it to be quite literal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, meaning, you know, the way that one expresses uh, uh, through music and the pacing on the music and the speed of words is just like the speed of notes. You have to take the time to make it a little clearer for people to be able to understand. And uh, with the instruments, I, I think that this... This instrument is uh, phenomenal, and we are uh, very happy. And the thing that I'm happiest still is that uh, you know the work is never finished, and we are always looking for ways to make it uh, more refined and to be more efficient, etc. So uh, while I would say that this is uh, really uh, it could be the, a, a pinnacle, I what I say is that we are always reaching for the stars, you know. And in music and in life, I believe you know you have to try to reach for the stars. And in your journey up there, if you fall down from your from your search for the stars, you're trying to search the moon, and you fall down and you land on Mount Everest. All right, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, but like if, if, yeah, but if you're looking at Mount Everest as the at the at the pinnacle, then you you'll never get there, or you get there, and then you know there's so much more. Yeah, yeah, you're still looking at the stars. Yeah, yes. So uh, that is uh, one of the things that uh, that I really appreciate uh, about the way that the philosophy here at uh, Baku Musica, which is, yes, 
do we have amazing products and uh, uh, in most ways superior to everything else out there? Yes, but so what? Uh, we are not ever resting on our laurels and you know just leaving it at that. Even the most uh, humble, the, the beginning uh, clarinet, etc. We uh, we give it the the same kind of attention, and I come and I try the instruments, and uh, some of our uh, uh, great players that love our products also test the instruments out, so that then you know it's not based. You know, just on a price scheme, for example, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, like the work that I relentlessly uh, yesterday and today, and we're going to do some more. It is no different for uh, for our models than what we did and how we do to develop for the mobile. And that is one of the things that I feel happiest about. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've kind of started briefly talking about your, your playing a little bit, but let's talk about your incredible orchestral career. Arguably, you are one of the most accomplished living uh, orchestral clarinetists. What advice advice do you have for for people who are just starting this path or yearning to get there one day into a large orchestra? Well, um, I I find that most of the time, the most important thing that one needs in order to be able to uh, have uh, the opportunity to to be successful at auditions, etc., is to have good basics. Okay, Uh, and what I mean by good basics, you have to have a good, yeah, a good standard or uh, sound that it is uh, appreciated in the area that you're in you know if, for example in the sound that is preferred in England is different than what we use in in, in North America as compared to you know in France etc so you have to be aware of those things and should then, one, sorry, sorry to interrupt but should one decide beforehand um, where they want to play before they start focusing on these basics or should they be open to changing their sound if need be well, I, I think that people, uh, yeah, so you can you can have a general idea of where it, where it is. I mean, I'm not saying that if you're, oh, I want to be in the uh, Boston Symphony, therefore I can only sound like how they play in Boston. I I would say, you know, if, uh, the you know that there's a, a general way that people um, uh, how people describe the sound that you uh, that is mostly preferred in North America versus uh, Germany, etc. And therefore, you have to. You know, if, if that's what, where you are and that's what you want to accomplish, then uh, you can start with, with that. I mean, um, uh, but what, but the sound, of course, the sound is one element. You know, the, the way that one supports the sound and can get through the instrument, be able to play scales and the control for uh, in the registers and articulation are paramount. I mean, you have to have all the things. Uh, uh, because you know nobody doesn't matter how beautiful your sound is. If you're gonna play the Mendelssohn scale, so it's very unlikely that you can ever be able to get a gig. You know what I mean? So there's a certain basic level of uh, uh, so uh, so you need a little bit of that. So that's the first thing. Then the patience. You need uh, the patience to go through the work and the uh, in order to be able to prepare for for auditions. You know, the, most of the time that we uh, practice things sort of haphazardly and not as as calm as we should. And I must admit, I'm the first one to do that. <laughs> so you know, I have to. You know, you have to. Uh, I I have to uh, make a plan of action for when uh, one is deciding to uh, prepare for uh, such an event and how to. You know, there are many different people who have uh, different techniques about doing it. I I prefer to go from you know just. A, huge amount of repetitions in this low tempo and build it up uh, but successful repetitions not 
you know, not. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds a little crazy, but I like to do, for example, in a piece that, that I may be doing. If I am, I take a tempo that might be like, uh, you know, uh, I would say 15 notches under the tempo. If I, you know, if if it goes at one third and one thirty or whatever, I start at uh, easily at 60. You know, mm-hmm. and then I'll just go. Uh, six or fifty, and, and build it, build it up every every four numbers, like, you know, things like that. But making sure that we do like the what I call the ten repetitions, you know, like make sure that I can do it ten times in a row without mistake. Because then what that does is that then you get to a, a place where you're practicing with purpose, even in the relaxed uh, settle, uh, setting that you're in, and therefore, you know, even if you're doing it slowly, that means that there's a level of concentration that you can that you always have to have when you're practicing. So that means that by the time that you're going to number six or number seven, it's like you're playing for real, right? <laughs> you don't want to screw up and go back to the beginning. So uh, it helps you even in the slow tempo to have the concentration to uh, finish those 10. And then if you're moving. So, you know, by the time that if I am 15 notches below tempo and I do those, that is if without, I haven't made any mistakes, okay? I would have done it by the time I get to the tempo at least 150 times correctly. Okay, mm-hmm. and if I screwed up in one of the notches, ah, oh, number four, number six, and they start again, you keep the good ones in the bank, right? And then you have to concentrate and then continue. So that means is that you will have done it a certain number of times. It sounds, and of course, you cannot do it in one day because you'll uh, commit suicide. It's just go crazy. So you have to plan it. So then if you're 15 notches below, then you do, uh, you know, like uh, I would say uh, between three and five at the most per day for, uh, for any particular excerpt, you know, and then you move on. So then you can get to your to your prescribed tempo, hopefully, in the span of uh, 10 days or something like that. So do, do you mean three to five tempo markings per day? Is yeah. That what, is that what you're saying? So like yeah. going from 60 to 65, is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, if I'm doing it every three, 60, 60 63, 60, uh, 60, you know, something like that. I just do three, but then I did 30 right uh, 30 correct ones for that day. So you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll do 30 in a row? Well, the- I, do it, I, do in, 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 uh, I do it in uh, in in groups of 10, of course. If I'm concentrating, I do 30 in a row. And if I don't screw up. But, you know, since I'm human like everybody else and I lose concentration and I'm always uh, checking out, you know, the the phone, is, even if it's in vibrate, the and then you screw up something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but... But you do at least three. I like to do at least three revolu- three rounds. Okay, so it would be at least thirty times. Okay, of I'm not saying I'm not saying uh, like Daphne and Chloe from the first page to the end thirty times. I mean you have to uh, concentrate and you know you will do the one page that gives you trouble the thirty times or the one the five measures or six measures that you want to concentrate on and then you move on. You know things like that. So you uh, you have to use uh, surgical precision and surgical strike to. To do one thing at a time. So this might seem like a, a silly question, but how do you keep track of which one you're on? Because I, I, it would it would occupy my mental psychos a little bit to remember. Okay, this is number twenty-seven. Um, no, because I don't go twenty-seven. It's up to ten. I count ten. Oh, so you just do one group of ten, second group of ten, third group of yeah. ten, and then right. if, you, if you can do them all right, you move on. Yeah, then you move to something else. So you don't burn your brain, and you don't. Uh, also, you don't injure yourself from extreme continuous repetition of something mm-hmm. yeah absolutely that's actually really interesting um is that something you apply to all of your practice for yes yeah so be it scales uh, etudes pieces excerpts yes it's a uh, uh, i 
I try to take with all my uh, super talented students. I tell I tell them you have to take ability and talent out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you put in the work and you do the work, and talent and uh, music. Uh, the, your talent will give you the powder sugar for the extra beauty for the expression. But don't don't uh, you have to put in the work it's like a, there's a saying from Cal Opperman that I used to say and I love it and I keep it in my uh, from the front of my mind he said practice and hope but don't hope more than you practice <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true yeah absolutely <laughs> so uh, that, I mean with that one it's just like yeah just like that and uh, you know just uh, you have to keep a positive attitude. I mean, like the thing that we're always growing uh, in music as in life, you know, it's like you're either getting better or worse. Nothing really stays. I mean, like if I, if we could just, uh, you know, if we could just uh, keep life in, in a particular and just freeze dry and, and preserve everything like that, that we're one thing. Hey, you know, oh, I finally lost those 20 pounds. I want to stay here forever. And then. It, the body changes, you know, we, our needs change, and we, so everything moves. So you have to be always, you know, uh, conscious of the work you're doing and flexible enough to make the adjustments necessary for, for what, what needs to be done. Absolutely. And, and so speaking of, um, sort of, sort of technique and, and, uh, different methods of learning music, do you have any methods for memorizing music better or in a way that works for you or how, how does that work for you? Um, uh, for me, actually, you know, it's, uh, I don't have a particular method for memorizing. I, I the, there are people who are good at that. I remember when I memorized the Nielsen for the first time. It's just a piece that is not, uh, it doesn't want to stick into your brain, etc. But uh, so then, what I did was I forced myself to learn it. You know, like one page at a time. You know, just two lines at a time. Let me play these two lines. Let me play them twenty times, and then start playing it without looking at the music. Oh, I'm made the mistake, I go back, what is it? Okay, look at it that way. And it was just a very, a very crass, brute amount of hours that I put into it. Um, I mean, there, I'm sure there are people who have yeah, good, uh, you know, maybe a good technique for memorizing. I, I just, I get to memorize things just because I put in the work. Uh, like, like, like I was saying, like, for example, you're playing that Mendelssohn skirt, so, and you're 15 notches below, I'm sure that by the time that you get, and that's one time that you get to the tempo, you know, and of course, once you get to your tempo, that's fine, you get it, and then you, you start again, back, slow, mm-hmm. like, and then you do it. So, yeah, I like to, uh, f- before an audition, I like to be able to uh, do the, the plan. If It's nice if you can do it three times, you know, at least three times. So then if you're 15 notches below each time, then, you know, you, you will have done 450 times that Mendelssohn skirt zone. Wow. You see what I mean? So the thing is that uh, that's to me that is what builds confidence. It's not as much as I uh, used to be, uh, you know, as much as religiosity in my count and uh, concentration and Zen mind and all that stuff. I think that what will give you the uh, confidence is just the uh, the knowledge that you have uh, that you are accomplishing it. Because you know, if you're not cheating in the practice of doing it and you are actually doing the 10 times in a row and then you know when you're doing it from uh, you know let's say you're doing middle school so that the typical uh, tempo would be uh, 84 or 86 and you start you know religiously you're going to start at 50 and there you're moving every four numbers you know the thing is that uh 
you will get gain that confidence, you know. Uh, and if there's so much to be done, you know, like uh, I like to say, you have to put in, you have to have your little checklist of things. Okay, you know, even at the slow tempo, do you have the right sound? Does it the right articulation? Are you using the right fingering? Are you using the right blowing? Are you having an embouchure that's not leaking air? Do you have that efficiency? Do you have the character? For the style and the and the phrasing, and so if you have those eight things, and you can honestly check mark all of those while you're doing those ten, there's no way you'll be bored. You'll be like so happy because you'll be sounding so great, <laughs> no matter what tempo, you know. <laughs> so you know, I, I find that there's no real reason ever to feel bored when you're practicing. If you're feeling bored, then you might as well stop and do something else because that means that you're actually not uh, not doing it right, you know. So this is, you're giving us such interesting insight into your sort of methods here, and uh, I want to thank you for that. I also feel, though, that I'm only going to get full value of it when I listen back a couple times through this and yes, <laughs> sort, yes, of, of sort of take it in again. But um, th- you seem like you have such a methodological approach. Um, th- does that come from within, or was there a teacher who inspired you, inspired you to be that way, or, or where does it come from? Um, you know, I, I, I feel very lucky that I've had great teachers, you know, and great people that I have uh, that come have come to my life, many many friends. My my three teachers, my uh, first clarinet teacher Leslie Lopez in in Puerto Rico, who is the the was the is the most uh, uh, famous of the clarinet uh, of clarinet and woodwind teachers over there. It's just uh, most of the accomplished clarinet players from Puerto Rico started with him. He's amazing. And then Ron DeCant in Cincinnati and uh, uh, Eddie Palanker, Eddie Palanker from the Baltimore Symphony that I started with him for. Six years at Eastern Music Festival, and uh, Ron DeCant, did I mention? And of course, Anton Weinberg, my uh, teacher from uh, that was a visiting professor in Indiana, and he before that he was in the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and a uh, famous teacher in London. And mm-hmm. so uh, they all were so different, and they they were also uh, right in giving me so many different points of view. So then the important thing is just to keep an, an open mind uh, to see what are the things that, that one can get from those, uh, uh, from all those people. Plus, you know, many of my colleagues in the Met and in Philadelphia and, uh, you know, in a music festival that I've done, you know, the thing is that I feel very lucky to be able to, to have been able to play with many, many accomplished players and, and, and actually good friends, even at school that, that had very many good ideas. And what I would say, suggest to people is that you have to the, the minute you get somebody saying this is the only way or this is the way and the rest forget it, then that for sure is the they're just giving you a dead end mm-hmm. for, for music and for life, okay? Uh, because there's no such thing uh, as that, you know. And um, I, I would say if I the more you learn, then of course uh, it is good to learn different things. And even if you disagree with them, if, if they're different than what you prefer, it only strengthens your core values. But you know, if 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 we are into a business of just plainly rejecting things just because they are different from what my first teacher said or from what his teacher's teacher said or whatever, then we, you, we would never progress. You know, if, if we were thinking always like that, the clarinet would still have the the two keys. You know, from the show. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a, I had that, there's this, uh, I forgot the author, there's this, one of the million books written about the clarinet, but it's the, one of those, uh, I was quoting some clarinet player, ah, you know, the clarinet's hard enough with seven keys, now they want to put 13 keys, oh my God, <laughs> you're just making things so, so hard. And of course, we can laugh about it right now, 
But, you know, we have people who think that way too. Hey, the clarinet doesn't need a band, doesn't need this or that, or, you know, and they just, they're, there's always people who uh, are comfortable with, with just, you know, with the status quo. And I understand you have to be able to feel comfortable with what you're doing, but, you know, uh, I'm sure that many people, uh, they, uh, many great artists were never like that. Could you imagine? I mean, like we look at, we talk about how great we want to be musicians and artists and blah, blah, blah. And many times uh, some schools just uh, churn out uh, people that it's just like a little factory, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, when you're thinking about this thing, it's like, okay, like motor concerto, everybody has a, a defined way. Oh, it has to be this way. It has to be that way. And, you know, Mozart died at age 36, you know, and uh, he was, even at that time, he was young. He was uh, not, I mean, the average age, okay, was maybe like uh, in their 50s or 60s, early 60s, but uh, without penicillin. I don't even know how the world went around, my God. But the thing <laughs> is that uh, the point is that, you know, when you see the, the amount of input that he put in his uh, music, and you know that had he lived 10 more years instead of 36 to 46, and Beethoven would have been around, etc. you know, the kind of musical uh, interaction that would have happened and everything, you know for a fact that he would not have been satisfied writing the same way, the same music, or anything like that, because, you know, even five years prior to it, to his death, they're, 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 even though it's still in the so-called classical period, you see how much more sophisticated his music is, etc., and all these great composers, etc. So the thing is that we have to, in a way, uh, be like that if we are to, you know, we have to adapt to what's next. Well, it seems to me that most composers wrote their most compelling stuff in their later years, so it would have been surprising if Mozart hadn't continued to adapt and evolve and exactly. change, you know? So the question is, why don't we? Yeah, and, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. So so this is something I was going to ask earlier about. So your thoughts on the E-flat key, for example, on the clarinet, They do they expand the repertoire or does it get in the way? Or <laughs> Of course. The E-flat e key? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I use it quite often. You know, the thing is that uh, it uh, it's just like everything. I mean, it's like there's a... Uh, a way to, you know, you have to use it. There's places like Debussy Rhapsody we've gotten used to, you know, sliding around with that. Yeah, that last but, page. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? No, no, I'm talking about like in the second page when we're playing in, uh, when we're playing in B major. Oh, yes, yeah, that spot too. You know, things like that. Um, uh, of course, you know where we learned by sliding around, etc. And it can mm -hmm. be done; it's fine. But once you actually start using the key and you practice it, uh, so you can use it, then then you have many more possibilities. You don't have to use it, but if it's there and you use it, then that is, uh, you know, it's much better for you. It's sort of like the turn signal, you know. You don't really have to use it, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's much better for you if you use your turn signal, right? So it is sort of like that. I mean, uh, of course, at the beginning, the, the trick is that you have to put, uh, it has to be positioned in a place that is comfortable for you, yeah. for the player. Uh, therefore, you know, different makes have different key lengths or whatever, so you have to, sometimes you have to uh, bend it to be in a place where, where you are. I personally end up uh, the, making uh, an adjustment because when, uh, when I started, which I was 11, my hands were way smaller, so I have gotten used to extending my pinkies. So, it, like in the normal place, I very easy overreach and hit it. So, you know, I 
you know, and I customize my, my sizing and the positioning. So uh, if we give ourselves the opportunity to do that, and then you just have to hit Berman returning scales for E major and A flat major, you know, and go to town on those, then you get used to using it. And there, therefore you have more flexibility. I, I, I just want, wanted the instrument to be a better tool I mean, the clarinet, as much as we love the, the sound of it, you know, it is a tool for the expression. And, you know, as, as we all know, people play the clarinet uh, uh, differently than 50 years ago than 50 years before that. And, you know, uh, differently than when Brahms heard it and different from when Beethoven, or, well, Beethoven may not have heard that much. Uh, <laughs> like, but, uh, you know, from Mendelssohn and Mozart, it's, it's a different sound, a different... <laughs> Everything. I mean, that's that's a terrible joke, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm still laughing at it here. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, terrible. But uh, but you know what I mean. So so it is. How do we make a better tool for for accomplishing the things that the musicians, the the great composers, ask yeah. of us? Yeah, I don't want to dwell on this this stupid E flat key, but it's so funny that you say this because one of the 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 go to arguments I have because I strongly agree that it has value and that that it has a purpose. Um, but I've heard people who think that it's literally sort of evil and that you should not practice it at all, lest you, lest you use it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, one of the things I always say though, to the people who say to me that, Oh, well, what if I hit it by mistake? You know, couldn't that logic have been applied to every single key on the clarinet at some point? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, something as, as simple as that kind of question, it's like, you know what? That means that that person needs an adjustment, a customizing. Look, you know, it is just like everything. If you, if I give you the best tennis shoes, the most comfortable tennis shoes in the world, that like you can run from here to Winnipeg in, in three hours, uh, you <laughs> know, from uh, you know from Vancouver, and you could just run and be like the uh, million dollar man or whatever. Uh, but I give you a size fifteen then it's not going to be so useful as, you know, if you need a size 10 and a half or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, you know, something like that, it's just as simple as just having to get uh, your local repairman to put it in a place where you know that, I mean, I cut it short enough so that I know I have to extend to it. So then, so when I'm playing normal stuff, I know that I won't hit it accidentally. So, or as much. So, so that's one of the things. So that's just a matter of, of putting it in the, in the place that you need. See, I find it so so awesome that um, you're talking about the customization of the clarinet because this is even literally the clarinet that you have sort of co-invented with with Maury, and yet yeah. you're, you're still refining it to your own personal taste, and you're sort of advising people to do that with it, which I think is so so yeah, interesting. I, I mean, like the thing is that what I what, what I like about the instrument is that it does have its own particular voice and its own sound, etc. But I find it much more like I see so many of our artists that you know you see David Schifrin and Corrado Giuffredi and you know Eugene Mundy and Jessica Phillips and so many people who play these instruments and they all sound so different. I mean, they they we all sound different, and that is what I prefer. I want the instrument to just be a microphone for your voice, so then you can uh, so then it can allow you to uh, to find your voice easiest and that's how come you know uh, many times I, I I move around I I, ha I usually my go-to is in Coco Bolo the clarinet but I love having my Granadilla set and I use it from time to time I really like it very much and then sometimes I put Granadilla bells and barrels on the Coco Bolo clarinet or vice versa I put Granad uh, Coco Bolo bells or a barrel on the Granadilla but it's for a different feel a different color and you know the thing is that I 
want people to feel free to find their voice. I mean, I, the last thing that I want is just uh, to to have uh, to make an instrument that just sounds like, oh yeah, they're they're playing this or that, and based based on just the tonal qualities. I mean, that's it's nice to have, but but I want the yeah, the most important thing is uh, to have an instrument to allow you to sound your best version of yourself. Oh, I love that. So there's actually just two more quick listener questions here. Um, one of them is, and I'm not sure if this is this is true, but are, are you playing double lip embouchure all the time, or, or do you go back and forth, or, or what are your thoughts no. on that? And, and uh, okay, so on double lip, I, I've said it many times before. I would say that I have not heard one person who does not sound better on on double lip than on single lip. Meaning that everybody I know, uh, everybody can sound better on double lip, and there, uh, there's certain physical reasons. For that, when you put uh, the double lip, you know well, the first thing that happens is that if you uh, if you check your tongue position uh, when when you're playing single lip, and then when you uh, curl your upper lip and put it over your teeth, there's a physical reaction that makes the tongue go into a slightly different place, and it sort of curls itself inside. And that uh, that kind of movement is virtually the exact place where one needs it for having the at least for the French style uh, high tone position. Mm-hmm. And it just happens naturally because there's that physical reaction, how, uh, how we do that. Then, of course, you have the uh, bigger oral cavity uh, uh, that works as a nicer resonance box. And then you have, uh, it's much harder to bite, so you cannot bite into the instrument. And also, you, it helps you to balance uh, how you use your fingers. So mm-hmm. for all those reasons, I, I practice uh, quite often uh, double lip. And I encourage my students to practice double lip, and some of them just start practicing that way and ended up staying playing on double lip because it does smooth out the sound very uh, very much. And a lot of the players that I love who's playing, I love, uh, they play double lip, you know, uh, starting from, I mean, uh, from David Weber to uh, Carusa to Manuel Gomez, those uh, old school guys, to, you know, Stolzman played double lip and Eugene Mundy and, uh, you know, many. So there's a, a, a Harold Wright and, you know, so there's many uh, players. Uh, also, of course, McLean, uh, Ralph McLean. So there's a lot of people that uh, that do play double lip, who, uh, Corrado Giuffredi, of course, yep. that sound is just uh, phenomenal. I use it once in a while and I, I must uh, admit to our audience members, and please forgive me, the only reason why I don't do it all the time is because I'm lazy. <laughs> That's the only reason why I don't. You know, so, yeah. So I was just uh, going to ask, because you, you said that you practice with it a lot, but you don't actually perform with it. So or, or sometimes you do and sometimes you don't? Yes, like- yes. I, I do perform. Well, when I perform, I will play just a page of it of a piece or whatever, like a nice little solo or whatever, and then just keep going with the other stuff. Uh, but it's just that uh, it's only because I'm inconsistent with the practicing of it, even though, you know, I, I'm i inconsistent because I, I don't do it every day for like the five, ten minutes every day. So it's just like one of those things. So, I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm glad we're not on video anymore. I'm, I'm sitting here making these faces trying to play with my embouchure a bit here, trying to feel feel what you were talking about, yeah. What you should do is close your eyes and then do the, the feel. Yeah, put your index finger on your lower lip, and uh, put your teeth on the, on the on your nail, and mm-hmm. then yeah, and then uh, and then from there just put your uh, curl your upper lip and put it, and see what happens with your tongue. Huh. Yeah, I've tried it before. I, I find it it's difficult for me to hold the clarinet stably with it, but I guess if you have a neck strap on, that probably is half the battle. Yeah. 
plus the other thing is that it's a matter of getting used to it. Yes, of course, it's not going to be, you know, I assume you've been playing clarinet for longer than 10 years. So, you know, imagine this upper lip is not used to holding, you know, you have 10 years of that, uh, the, the muscles not being used in the same way as yeah. your lower you see, and oboe players and bassoon players play standing up and do this and everything in double lip anyway. So there's no reason why they, I mean, that they wouldn't be able to do it. You know what I mean? So it's just one of those things that we, of course, at the beginning, yeah, it feels more unstable. But as you, as we strengthen the the upper lip and the facial, the upper uh, facial muscles, then then you get much more stable. Do you, if when you see uh, people from from the past, they play do, that play double, they play standing, etc. Not a problem. So, well, yeah, you raise a good point. I mean, you can't expect to just start something new and and be where you are with your current no. technique of 20, 30 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, the, the important thing is that it keeps an open mind. It, uh, first of all, as for remedial work, immediately it's just great things because it helps you to uh, to uh, reshape your embouchure. It helps you to uh, redistribute the weight and the pressure that one uses on the on the embouchure, which, you know, it's just, uh, I, I even hate the word pressure, or but it just helps you to have the snugness of the embouchure. Uh, uh, it helps with the tone position and it helps you to become, you know, that instability is good while we are practicing slowly to see which fingers we used, overuse to overcompensate, we hit too hard, etc. So mm. it helps us to find which of those fingers that is like that so that then we can practice a more uh, uh, smoother technique. Absolutely. I'm going to try incorporating this. It seems really interesting to me. I've always kind of wanted to give it that push, but, you know, hearing all these great players and yourself included who use it, um, <laughs> yeah. really, I'm really questioning myself now. <laughs> no, it's just one of those things. I mean, uh, it's one of those things. Hey, look, uh, kale, kale salads and, and this and that and water is better than beer, is better than Coca-Cola, but <laughs> McDonald's still makes billions of dollars a year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And sometimes you got to say no to the kale salad and just have some, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> big bowl of fries. Yes, of course. That's what yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one more listener question, um, and yeah. that is, and again, I'm not entirely positive that this is a consistent thing that you do, but um, he's asking about the process on which you decided to play crystal mouthpieces and synthetic reeds. Are you still pretty much doing that? Or maybe I'll just let you talk yes. about that a little bit. Yes. Uh, well, with the crystal mouthpieces, actually, it's very interesting. I... I used crystal mouthpieces when I was a teenager, and mm-hmm. I had I still had that particular one. It was a gift uh, from a very uh, nice friends, and I like all the competitions that I did er- er- earlier in uh, my career. I used with that mouthpiece, and when I started uh, started starting with Ron Dikan, he was like, ah, oh, no, let's just get you something else, blah blah blah, and you know, Ron. He, he started, I forget who with whom he started in Lancaster, where he's from, but, you know, he's very good old school. He only, uh, his only main teacher in college was uh, Bonad. So he went from Lancaster to New York. He did his bachelor's and he started his diploma at Juilliard with Bonad, and then that was it. And then he went out. So then, you know, he told me, ah, oh, let's just go get you something else. And then he was always teasing me about, well, when you get your first job, I'll give you my mouthpiece, which was, of course, one of these vintage things. And what's <laughs> funny about it is that I got lucky. I won a job in my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year. And he was like, uh, uh, I think that what you're using is fine. You keep what you're using. So, you know, he, so he owes me, he owes me a mouthpiece when, when I, you know, so <laughs> it's one of those funny things. So, but anyway, uh, the, uh, 
so yeah, so I of course I, I switched it and then I just went on using on different things and whatever. But the thing is that you know I always like the sound and you know Corrado always uh, you know for for a long time he used uh, 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 hard rubber like all of us. But there's a particular quality to the sound that I always liked and you know once he started using them again I started you know uh, it, the mouth that I had. Uh, was made by uh, by the Pomaracos. You know, they have been in the business doing that stuff for uh, the last 50, 60 years. I mean, and like the all, all the mouthpieces that were sold by Selmer, by uh, uh, by Van Doren, the L, uh, the L1, L2, all those things were actually made by Pomaracos. So they have a huge vast amount of knowledge and uh, all the stuff. So when, you know, I was teaching at the, I uh, was invited, I was very lucky to be invited to be a visiting professor for the uh, conservatory in Milan, the Milan Conservatory. And since they are very nearby, I went there and I, I met with them and I just tried one that I fell in love with and that was that. So I've been trying them. And so uh, just uh, there, the things are, the you know the advances that people talk about it's like of course when you compare that to hard rubber because it's so much harder then it, it virtually is doesn't change that much I don't say that nothing changes they say everybody says it doesn't change at all and I will agree but I, I, I would say it would uh, probably doesn't change that much you know but nothing really stays uh, in the in the world so I don't know mm-hmm. but uh, so that was that and in terms of the in terms of the synthetic reads uh, you know uh, just exactly like in my thought of trying different things, you know, and working uh, with more, you know, there was a, a time when I was playing some concerts and I had a breakdown. I mean, breakthrough. It's a very, very small, yeah, fine big line. difference. Big difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's a fine line between breakdown and breakthrough. It's, it's clo- they're closer than you think. <laughs> so as we're playing some concerts, and it's like, ah, oh, you know, just the reads. It's in January in Philadelphia. The East Coast is notoriously weird for reads and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, so I just, uh, you know, I went uh, after I had some some concert that I was just really upset about. I was uh, just having like four four of my different uh, uh, model mouthpieces, just set, setting them out with different reads. So I was doing like a crazy uh, match the mouthpiece to the read, which is insane, you know. But I was just different that week, and then I play, started playing this concert, and I'm like, hey, this feels a little weird. What is it? And then I look, ah, oh, that was not the right uh, read for that mouthpiece. So I was like so upset, and in the middle of it, it's like, you know, this is this is so stupid. It, I felt I felt like so unprofessional for because of that. So. Uh, I, I just uh, decided to try the ones that I had in my drawer. You know, from you know, everybody always tries to want. Eh, it's good for practice, but nobody takes them seriously. So I, but since I was so fed up, I just tried them, and then I went the next week I, of concert with the orchestra. I went and I played it, and you know, I actually asked some of my colleagues, "Hey, what do you think about the sound?" Blah blah blah. And I did back to backs with some of my uh, distinguished colleagues from the orchestra, which are very much, you know, Philadelphia. Uh, people and that uh, the Philadelphia traditions and all these kind of hardcore things, and they could uh, not really even tell the difference. So then, if, if, since they uh, were hard pressed to tell the difference, then I decided, you know what, that's it. So I'm just gonna try them. And of course, you know, it takes a little commitment because they are similar, but they are not exactly the same. Uh, so. But that was that. I mean, I threw all my canaries that, that week, and then you know, I never looked back. I, I, I did it that way so that then I could get uh, uh, more used to them quicker. Because you know, uh, going back and forth, uh, like some people do, is uh, I, I call it. It's like you know, 
starting the uh, trying to start a new relationship while the old girlfriend keeps coming back. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah, there's certain uh, uh, you want to learn to uh, relearn how to feel what it feels like, and therefore to shape the sound, etc. So that's that's why I did it. And then you know I've been lucky to uh, uh, with Mori we made uh, since we're always uh, trying to keep uh, you know innovating. We did a couple of the. Uh, adjusted a couple of our model mouthpieces that work not only with Kane, but that I uh, that we did some work so that then it works really, really uh, wonderfully with uh, synthetics. And that's the MOBA C and the L model. They work really great for that. And uh, and then you know, so with the crystal was the next step. Right, let's just try this out. And then you know, uh, that uh, the a different color, different feel. You know, but uh, again, it's you know another tool in the in the toolbox for helping people to feel uh, more comfortable and have more options. Do you think you have to go cold turkey on the pla- on the, the cane reeds to switch to plastics? Because I've always been in the camp that you can kind of dabble with both, and, and but maybe that's yeah. not a good thought no, either. You, you, can, you can dabble in both, but the thing is, uh, uh, what I'm talking about is that the real idiosyncrasies, for example, for me personally, you know, I... I thought that I had a correct embouchure, et cetera. But you know what? The thing is, and it was pretty good, uh, but the thing is that uh, synthetic, for example, the synthetic, the, the ledgers that are used, they do not like to be uh, uh, clamped down. Okay? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw what, and I thought I didn't bite. And I actually didn't bite that much, but enough that then you have to get used to being able to, I had to relearn, I had to adjust to not adjusting. You know, so it's like, how to keep the embouchure more more normal. For example, like uh, in cane, because the cane swells up, then you have to loosen up the embouchure as you, uh, as you are, uh, uh, play uh, during the concert because then it's swelling up and then if uh, you want to play in the low register and uh, the, you have to get the reed to, uh, cane to vibrate more there's a little adjustment that we tend to relax a little bit and you don't have to do those things in, in synthetic because then it's not uh, it's actually detrimental so you basically you, you can have a, a more stable embouchure you know the same embouchure for fortissimo as for pianissimo but it takes time to uh, re- uh, relearn those little things and for just an everyday oh I'm just having a rehearsal or whatever and, or the winter season is bad let me just put this I ah, it works better okay that that is fine but if you want to uh, really feel like you own it uh, you just need to spend some time with it you know uh, to get all the the full benefits of it I mean you can go back and forth and have a couple in the in the case just for for emergencies or whatever but I, I think that eventually that you can get a more consistent, better sound. Because, you know, with Kane, the good thing is like buying a lottery ticket. You're always hoping hoping that you're going to win the lotto. Uh, but, you know, my experience <laughs> has been that, that I always got the perfect read the day before or the day after the big event. You know, but most of the time, in the day of the event, it's like, ah, it rained, it got a little stuffy, or it got cold, it's a little brittle, whatever. And with this stuff, it's just uh, with the... With the synthetic, I have a much more consistent batting average, and therefore I I, I have more confidence in the way I play, and 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 uh, it's much easier uh, to be able to 
uh, like for example, when I'm testing reads, uh, when I'm testing the instruments, you know, I don't want to come to Vancouver to try something and then oh, it was rain. Yesterday was rain, pouring rain over here, and today is the most beautiful day. It has been super beautiful, and tomorrow is gonna rain again. But you know, this kind of stuff while you're trying to uh, determine intonation and response for an instrument and things like that. That's the kind of stuff where it's a little tricky, and you don't want to make it uh, haphazardly. Well, I think it was Ed Joffe again who told me a story about uh, some artist that was actually, or maybe it was Tim Elvey from Legere when I talked to him. I can't remember who it was right now. But um, he told me a story of where these artists that are performing in a lot of cities will actually keep stashes of reeds in each city. <laughs> yeah. So they can yeah. be climatized. And that that's, you know, kind of taking things to the extreme. But uh, Right, right. Yeah, no, I have to say, I, I, lo- I love your open-minded attitude towards all these things, and I'm feeling a strange sort of sense of Canadian pride right now here. Are you talking about the, the, <laughs> yes, b- the Bakun and the Leger? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, the best stuff made in Canada, man, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> going to get you some maple syrup, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Out, out of the interest of time, I, I feel like we could talk all, all evening, but I... I want to respect the fact that you, you, of course, have many other things to do right now. Well, thank you. And, you know, uh, uh, I just want to invite people to keep an open mind and uh, find, you know, do the things they love in the cloud. And, you know, that's all. If someone does want to sort of reach out to you or uh, um, um, online, is that something you're open to through Artist Works? Is that? A- yes, through Artist Works, they can uh, throw uh, message, uh, messages or a shout out over there. And of course, they can always uh, send questions to Joel Jaffe at Bacon Musical. And he is always very good about uh, helping me organize and uh, uh, answer questions that you may have. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Well, thank you so, so much, Ricardo, for taking the time to chat with me. And hopefully we can have you back on the show one day again. Oh, thank you. Oh, one little last shout out. You, just so you uh, know, the, in the uh, in the Baku Musical website, there's a uh, there's a, a book of uh, clarinet fingerings, resonance fingers, three books, uh, book in three volumes of the third notes and altissimo racer and the high racer that I worked on, um, and uh, it's very concise with uh, uh, with suggestions and extra pieces that that. That the fingers work out and there is a, it's a free download, etc. So it's pretty cool. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For detailed show notes for this and all other episodes of the podcast, please head to www.clarinet.com. Did you know that Patreon backers now get access to exclusive content, extended versions of episodes presented in high-resolution audio, and much, much more? To learn more about how you can support the podcast and get access to this content at the same time, see www.clarinet.com Patreon. If you enjoyed today's chat, be sure to tune in next time for a talk with Eugene Mondi of the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. I'd like to thank Joel Jaffe for having the foresight to put these past couple interviews together with artists as they're actually in the studio there or the, the workshop, I guess, or the, the, the factory in Vancouver. What a great idea. And I hope this is something we can continue into the future as artists pass through town. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Daddario Woodwinds. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. 
But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.